Everybody loves an Amiga story, and that's why we are first to bring you the news that the Amiga fast file system is returning to the Linux kernel. Who needs this? I think just about no one. <laughs> Some SUSE developer, you know it. I mean, I, I would bet you, search, the, search that article, I bet you three bucks that it's a SUSE, it's a SUSE thing. It just sounds like them. It just sounds like them. Oh, yep. Okay. Asus <laughs> developer <laughs> and kernel maintainer, David Sturba. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Asus developer. <laughs> I guess he was just reviewing it and committing. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I can't someone blame else, him. Someone else authored the yeah, batch. Yeah. But what are the chances somebody from Seuss is attached somehow? What are the chances? I kid because I don't know. Hello, friends, and welcome to 371 of your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Mr. Payne. Did you know that this episode is brought to you by a cloud guru? Are you looking to get a high-paying career, maybe move into the cloud and make some good change? Well, there's no better place to start than getting a certification. ACG has helped more than 2 million people scale up on the cloud. AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud Platform. Head over to cloudguru.com and get started. Now, we have a great show today. It's a special smoky edition. We're recording it a little early because I'm hitting the road and we're getting slow cooked while we do it. It's it's, it's like, a cold smoke. It's, it, is, it is a cold smoke. It's a wood smoke that we're surrounded in. So if you hear Wes coughing during the show, it's definitely the wood smoke. Before we go any further, I got to say hello to Drew. Hello, sir. Hello. Hi, Drew. Wearing your Sunday pajamas, I see. <laughs> Wore them on Tuesday, too. <laughs> You know, it's always nice to have your Sunday pajamas on Tuesday. And of course, everybody in the Mumble Rooms in their pajamas, time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 A special hello to Mr. Stuart Language. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> oh, hi. Hi. We're going to be talking about Cabin in a little bit. I mean, we got a few things to get to today. We got more than just that, Stuart. Jeez. But we're going to get to that a little bit. So do feel free to jump in. On any topics as we go. Hello, Popey. It's good to see you, too. Hello. Hi. You'll be joining us for the cabin chat. But you know what, Popey? I also give you very special permission to jump in on any topic. Just any topic, Popey. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start in the news. Not the Amiga file system update. Aww. But the future of the Ubuntu community. Now, I'm going to warn you, I got up real early today. So I might have a slightly spicier than usual take on this one. And any guidance from uh, our friends in the Mumble Room would be appreciated. But I came across this thread on the discourse.ubuntu.com site. You may have heard of it. It's a new thing. Brand new. You should go check it out. No, not really. And I'm not going to name names at first here, but eventually this conversation led to Mark Shulworth coming out of the woodwork and responding to this. And it starts kind of directly at him. He says, uh, this is the original poster. I've seen discussions about the abrupt loss of leadership in the community. And this is a sad event. I'm not entirely, however, surprised. If you've been around the project for some years, you'll notice that there's been a progression towards deinvestment in the community for many, many years. But the thing that's most saddening, though, is that Mark, who has benefited from countless thousands of volunteer hours, which are certainly worth millions of dollars, didn't have the respect for the community to even articulate why he abandoned the community and has been silent on the collapse of governance which he played a part in, since he, after all, is the project leader. Now, it's hard to read those two first paragraphs and not feel like there's a tone in there. And the tone that I, I, I impart on that 
is one of all dad does is work all day and night, two different jobs to put food on the table and a roof over our house. Daddy's too busy keeping the business running to pay attention to us, and we're sick of it. That's what I hear when I read that. And I appreciate that there is a, this is a complex issue, but the structure of this is it, it feels so privileged. It reads to me as so extremely privileged. I grant that there is some legitimacy to the complaint. There is value derived from the community, and there is a certain level of investment that Canonical should be making in the community to perpetuate that. I, I grant that argument, but I feel like this tact is, it's almost designed, it seems like, to elicit a response from Shuttleworth. It's quite provocative and, yeah, seems to warrant a response. So Mark chimes in eventually pretty far down in the thread because, you know, something like this, people can, they all got to jump in with their two cents. Mark responds in part, I'm not absent. In fact, for the past few years, I've set aside all other interests and concerns to help Ubuntu get into a position of long-term sustainability. This has been an amazingly difficult job, but I set my mind to it precisely because I care that the Ubuntu community has a backbone which is durable. I'm rather frustrated at my own team because I have, a, I have long allocated a headcount for community lead at Canonical, a post which has not been filled. It's necessary to have a dedicated lead for this. Not so much because the community needs leadership, but because its self-motivated leaders need support. Think of the role more as community secretary than community advocate, helping to get complicated pieces lined up to empower others to be great. The project has continued to grow in complexity and capability. There are more people than ever working on it, more people than ever making demands on it. So getting things done requires patience and coordination. Helping motivated community leaders to be effective in driving their work forward is important to me. You could really read a lot into this. And I'm curious to get everyone's take on this. One of the last paragraphs he writes, Mark Shuttleworth writes, I watched how CC members stopped coming to meetings, stopped organizing their meetings, stopped driving activity. This is obviously not a universal picture. There have been harder working and less hardworking CCC bodies. And there have been more effective and less effective CC members. I understand it's hard to put a lot of effort into something that doesn't seem to correspond directly to a specific project or outcome. And he kind of talks about how it had other issues with decision-making. I'm just going to take a stab at the dark. And I'm going to say, you know, Mark's got a limited amount of time. And he looked at the effectiveness he was deriving from this community council and decided his time was better spent investing in making canonical sustainable and durable. Yeah, it's also, it's, yeah, it's just hard, right? The limited amount of time, a little amount of oversight that one can have over all these things. And if no one else is doing those, if, if it's not actually being delegated or being handled, yeah, at some point stuff slips through the cracks. Poby, from your vantage point, do you feel like the role that community plays in the creation of Ubuntu has shifted over time? Oh, definitely. Things have changed over time. Every open source project does. I think I recognize a number of things in this conversation. One thing I do have to point out is I'm glad that Ubuntu has the kind of community that will pick up on these things and will tell us, hey, you're doing something wrong, and we'll come to a place they know we're going to see, like the, the Ubuntu discourse, and will lay out their stall for how they think things should be improved. And whether you think this was done, you know, to trigger Mark, or whether you think Ben, who wrote the first post, you know, had good thoughts in mind when he wrote it or not, the outcome is good, because it did ping Mark, obviously, and it, it made him think about this and articulate his thoughts. And I've been on the CC about 10 years ago before I started working for Canonical. I was on the community council and I, I certainly recognize some of his comments about, 
the CC goes between periods of not having anything to do because they're quite a reactive group and having really difficult problems to deal with. And that's that's very hard going from naught to 100, like very quickly and having to deal with problems. I think one of the big problems with some of the community councils, uh, what I mean by some of is, you know, people's term runs out and they may get voted in again or they may not. And so the staff, the people change over time. I think one of the mistakes is people feel that they have to wait for Mark to say yes to something. And that's not the case. When you're voted into the CC, it's recognition that you already have some level of recognition in the community. You already have autonomy. You already have a position of leadership. And so you should feel empowered to go and fix things or go and have conversations with people. And I think people in previous CCs have felt like they had to run everything past Mark. And that's just not the case. And, you know, sometimes he didn't turn up to meetings because he was in a business call or on a plane or, you know, there's reasons why everyone can't be at every single meeting. But it did tail off about a year ago or so when people kind of gave up. And I, I'm glad that this thread has been triggered because it's reinvigorated Mark and reinvigorated the people around Mark who hopefully will solve this problem and reboot the, the CC. Fair enough. In fact, there has been a development before we get there, but I wanted to ask Stuart and I'm trying to think of a way to, I was trying to think of a way to phrase this. It doesn't say Stuart, you're old. You've observed a lot, but I mean, <laughs> Stuart, you have been around for a while in the community and you, you must've observed there's a different value. It seems like companies, many companies, but canonical in particular are driving from the community today than they did say 10 years ago. I would agree. I mean, I don't really have a position on this. Um, I've been, uh, I, I have watched the conversation with interest, obviously. But I think one of the things that Canonical has done, as all long-term open source projects do, is think more about sustainability. Uh, this is why, for example, things like the Unity desktop went away, even though it was marvellous, because Canonical need to think about how can we ensure not only that Ubuntu exists today, but Ubuntu continues to exist and carries on doing the best it can for the most people? And so I think there was something of a sort of a community free-for-all in the early days. And now as it's got a bit more professional, and some people have kind of gone, oh, well, it doesn't seem as much fun anymore, which is undeniably possibly the case but on the other hand it means that i still have a desktop that i use every day and have done for when did when did it first come out 2004 so 16 years and i'd rather that was the case than the the whole thing fizzled like so many other projects have done when someone starts saying but i've got bored with working on this and i'm not being paid for it yeah I could definitely see a, a similarity when we started taking Ubuntu more seriously as a product and started using yeah. it in production more. This attitude shifted a bit, and it became less of this fun thing that we're playing around with as a community and more of a serious thing that we depend on. That's the thing. I mean, I, I'm, as, as you mentioned, I am, I am older than some of the people in the community <laughs> and have said, not that old. Um, but, <laughs> but I think the other thing is that fiddling about with your desktop is to some extent at least a 
a young person's thing to do in my experience it certainly was when i was younger i used to enjoy things like uh changing between different distributions and so on but now my views have radically changed on that to the point where my desktop is the thing which launches applications and applications are what i care about mm-hmm. um so i can get things done whether they're fun things or work things or whatever and so the importance of talking about the desktop itself has in my experience and in my life fallen by the wayside a bit right i don't know whether this is because i've got old or i've got professional and boring or the linux community has got professional and boring or all the above (laughs) or or possibly yeah a little from column a little from column b a little from column c yeah (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, I think too, as, as you know, Ubuntu's taken over the cloud, right? What you're using is more of the package infrastructure, things like that, and the desktop isn't really relevant. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely something that matters to us, but to most of the market, it's not it's not necessary for what you're deploying on the server. I think there's a difference between caring about the desktop and people wanting to get involved in maintaining it because mm. right. it was fun. As Stuart said, back at the start, it was fun. Like we're breaking new ground and it's innovative and we're doing new things and we're making the desktop usable by normal human beings as the old strap line used to go. But it turns out those things have to be maintained. And if you commit to a five-year support term for an LTS or a 10-year support term for an LTS, someone's got to keep cranking out those packages. And that gets really boring really fast. And so, yeah, people move on to the next big shiny. And Canonical have still continued to finance people to support all those LTS releases for all those years. And some of the community people have just moved on because it's just not fun and interesting anymore. I certainly would agree um, when you say people move on to the next big shiny. I think people who are involved in maintaining the desktop for fun in their spare time are entitled to go to where the fun is. And the fun, honestly, is not, as you say, in maintaining a thing that already exists, making sure it stays stable and so on. So I think some of the motivated community developers – it's not as much fun to work on Ubuntu, the desktop, as it is to work on some other desktop who are doing radical changes of things because they're not supporting millions upon millions of users who don't want their desktop to change every 30 seconds. <laughs> but if you do if you do want to hack on this stuff, then, yeah, go somewhere where they're doing something radical and innovative. That's a really good idea. Right. Which is – and Ubuntu is not radi- – I mean, when it came out, it was this um, – incredibly big change the idea of having a sense of design and uh being design led in the linux world was itself a radical reinterpretation of the text and it brought calm to chaos in a way too because there was app selection that took place instead of having three mail apps yeah exactly so having opinions being prepared to state them and back them up and back them up with money made a really big difference but now ubuntu is not the um it's not the new plaything. It's the old statesman of the Linux world. It's what, you know, 95% of people actually out there using Linux are using. Those people are not interested in hacking on the desktop. It's just the thing that launches their applications. Yeah, or maybe even more starkly put, the thing that launches their web browser. Uh, Minimech, yeah. you think maybe the, the role falls upon us to reach out to a newer generation? 
Yeah, we, we shouldn't forget the talking. I see all the arguments and I'm also one of the older generation. So I normally stay with stock installation. Maybe I change my uh, desktop manager. But we need the younger generation and these are the hackers. Like Wimpy mentioned two weeks ago, we need to find new channels and new ways to communicate with them, give them access to the hacking. And yeah, so they have really fun to do the thing and then discover Linux like that. Yeah, I could see just trying to be there to support their journey and learning and being open to whatever that path might take them because it's probably going to be a lot different than our path was when we were younger because the industry has changed significantly. Uh, as uh, we're recording this, though, the story has updated a bit. Mark Shuttleworth announced that now in cooperation with an Ubuntu member and, and former community council member, I'm going to say Walter Lapchinsky. <laughs> what do you think? think you did pretty good. Really? <laughs> we call him Wexel because <laughs> it's easy to just call him Wexel. Uh, well, Wexel uh, will be uh, working to restore the community council. And Mark, wrote, uh, having considered over the weekend, uh, I think I'll take Wexel's offer to help run the process. Let's go ahead and call for nominations to the community council. Well, how about that? He also thanks Wexel for the conversation and getting it going. And then he ends with an apology for having dropped the ball. It seems like he really did reflect on this over the weekend. And that seems like a positive development, too. Right. I mean, I can see being difficult, too, if there's been, you know, mixed levels of availability and seemingly excitement around this process. Uh, he, you know, he does note that it's nice. Maybe it is a good idea to have this in place, even if it isn't particularly active. Um, so maybe there just needs to be some discussion and clarification here around what the roles should be and, you know, what it really means to be a part of it. Well, speaking of other positive developments, there's been a lot of positive de developments for the workflow development of ButterFS. Uh, now, Wes, I'm going to go and say Yosef Bakik. Uh, well, this is uh, one of the Butterfest developers who I follow. And you know, we'll have to we'll have to check after the show because uh, his his talk over the summer we'd mentioned before about Butterfest development and use in Facebook that's out now, which we'll have added to the show notes. Right. Thank you. Yes. Uh, which I did catch a little bit of. It's it's you know it's a file system talk. So prepare yourself for. Uh, a lot of excitement, but <laughs> put some fascinating <laughs> insights into how Facebook uses it. And it looks like after some discussions over the weekend and working out how they want their future development workflow to work, they're on track to improve things quite a bit. Yeah. How about this? All of our patch submissions will be tracked as individual GitHub issues. So we know what needs to be reviewed and what is pending. We're also tracking XFS test failures in our FS test tree, and we'll start staging fixes there so we don't step on each other's toes when adding new tests. I like this line here. Getting a group of developers who have different companies and different bosses on the same page is tricky. But we think this is a step in the right direction. And, right? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interest in different folks helping maintain ButterFS. It's getting serious. It can't be easy. Yeah, and, and it's good that they recognize as a team they got some workflow stuff to work out. I mean, it's not like everything's solved. Yeah, sometimes you got to, you know, do a little work on the ways that you work. And that way you can work. That is so wise, Wes. Somebody should put that on a T-shirt, you know? That could, that could be what drives industry for years to come. Oh, I think it will. And that and the next Linux kernel, which Mr. Larble over at Pharonix seems to have been hot on the trot on a performance regression and even gotten a bit of a conversation back and forth with Mr. Uh, Linus yeah. on uh, what the heck's going on. I and, mean, you know he loves benchmarks. And, you know, we love a good kernel story, so anytime we have an excuse to cram one in, we do. And, like, you know, you got to talk about the kernel. Of course. You know, it, it deserves its uh, respect. And last week, Pharonix reported that there was a performance regression in Linux 5.9, 
when you go from like say 5.0 and you compare it to 5.9, pretty noticeable performance drop in things like Apache and Nginx workloads. So it, like, it would directly impact quite a bit of cloud servers if deployed. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily great. And so it seems that he he sent a note to Linus and Linus took a look at it and kind of gives an explanation on what's going on. And I think that's fascinating. If you're interested in what the actual real world performance results were, um, they actually are pretty noticeable. Yeah, you, good. You know, I thought it was interesting that there'd been some other sort of tests on like a hackbench, other systems that the kernel uses, but it was actually, you know, Michael's benchmarks because that he had tests that Linus at least felt were a little more real world that stood out and, you know, gave some more attention to this issue. That's kind of a nice feather in his cap. Yeah. So here's how Torvalds originally summed up the issue with all of the interesting technical details in an email to Michael following the bisect report. Mr. Payne, take it away. Let's say that a page is locked by some user. Doesn't matter why. It might be I.O. It might just be for any number of other reasons that, you know, I need to get and make sure that this page stays consistent. I need a lock. And while that's happening, a number of other processes come in and want to lock it. What we do, and what we did before that commit too, is to queue them up in the hashed page wait queue. And a flag is set on the page structure to say, this page has waiters. We queue things up in order so that the oldest waiter is first. That is meant to be about fairness, but you'll see later why that didn't actually used to matter. Look at Linus the storyteller here. I love it. Anyway, this thing didn't change fundamentally by that commit that you bisected the performance regression to. Yes, the commit changes that queuing, but not in any fundamental significant way. The change is incidental to the big change, which is the what happens at wake up. Right. So that's what the big difference here is. It's that wake up behavior. Both before and after, the basic trigger is the same. The process that holds the page lock does an unlock page call. And as it unlocks, it also checks that do we have waiters bit on the page structure and goes off to process that wait list. And here's the big difference. We used to just wake things up on that wait list. And that was it. We had various anti-herd behavior, so we'd only wake up one exclusive waiter process, i.e. somebody who was doing a lock page. So we wouldn't have all these waiters suddenly wake up. But basically, we just did, oh, we've now released the page, so wake up the waiters. That That's the simple end of it. Okay. That sounds obvious, but actually, it has a rather non-obvious effect. In particular, the page is now unlocked, and the waiters have been woken. But they aren't necessarily running. They have become runnable, but particularly under load, it's probably sometime before those waiting processes actually get any CPU time. In the meantime, all the processes that weren't on the wait queue and are runnable are free to come in and take that page lock again before the person that's supposed to take it has actually gotten CPU time. I see. So I barely follow, but it seems like you have this situation where it's waiting to wake up, it's waiting to wake up. Uh, and then there's this wait queue. I don't really follow the technical details of this, but it seems like they're on the case. Well, so it, it's it's kind of like this. You know, you're waiting for something. You know, maybe it's next. It's your turn to uh, head up to the buffet, buffet line, if you, okay. if you remember those. All right, now I'm following. Yeah, right. So you're, you're in your queue. You're ready to go to the buffet line. But it <laughs> takes some time to actually get from where you're waiting all the way over to where the buffet is. And even though you've now got the magic spoon that you're going to use to ladle all your food from the buffet, oh, okay, yeah. someone else can just come sneak in. And what? since no one's currently using the buffet in Not between... 
No. They'll just take your place. No. And then there's some like more, you know, there's more nuances here where then actually the person would notice that the page had been locked before they got there, you know, the one who was supposed to get it. Um, but then the way the kernel scheduled is they'd be, they'd end up back at the end of the wait queue again. So they were at the front. Oh, no. Didn't get the resource, had to go all the way to the back. And because of this, that you'd notice these big regressions where suddenly you have these horrible latency spikes. So to round out this analogy, is it basically brats not to the front of the line? <laughs> exactly. That's how you lose out on the pudding, Wes, is you get sent to the back of the line. That's super unfair. So Linus's change was aimed at trying to make this more fair. But unfortunately, uh, that can have bad places for throughput because while you might have a you know less maximum latency, probably your minimum latency is going to be worse because it's it's more fair. And at the same time... If, you know, this has been unfair for a long time. And so that just means sort of accidentally, a lot of the other parts of the kernel have been built around that. And so changing it touches a lot of other subsystems. She's uh, okay. It's just particularly why you see problems with Apache, but you also see a bunch of issues possibly in file system benchmarks. Yeah, Linus is, uh, he's trying some stuff. He's kind of ideating, playing around with some solutions, looking for feedback. So probably this will be something we see uh, fixed sooner rather than later. Okay. Well, I'm glad they're on it. That's my summary of it. Go get them. <laughs> so we don't have to. Linode.com slash unplugged. This is an exclusive offer for Linux Unplugged listeners. Sign up, go into Linode.com slash unplugged and get a $100 60-day credit towards new accounts. Linode is simple cloud infrastructure that you can deploy in seconds. With shared hosting, starting around $5 a month, but then they have a bunch of different options going from there with dedicated CPU plans, GPU compute plans. You can use orchestration management if that's your preferred way to deploy systems. And of course, they have a one-click app market. I've been a Linode customer for a couple of years. And over that couple of years, I've witnessed this company just grow and evolve their product offering in a really clever way. Linode.com slash unplugged. Of course, they have native SSD storage, 40 gigabit connections coming into the machines, industry-leading fast processors, and a new revamped cloud manager that's built on open source. How about that, Wes Payne? Ooh, me some. And of course, you get root access to your box. But the thing that I really like, and I've never really taken advantage of this before, is their command line application. I just started using it about, I don't know, it's been, I don't know, it's less than a year. And I find this to be a really easy way to send up files to their object storage and then link them publicly to shut down machines. I get alerting and reporting on what's happening with my system. So like I saw over the weekend, Alex was working on a self-hosted development machine that we're setting up. We use Linode to host our matrix server right now, and it just works fantastic. Sure does. We also set up multiple accounts so the guys can log in and work on stuff as they need. Wes Payne can go in there and set up a machine if he needs to, just like Alex can. Super simple to set all of that up. And with a $100 credit, just go over there, set up a new account. You get $100 for 60 days just by going to linode.com slash unplugged. There's a lot, like you can yeah. a, a lot you can learn, a lot you can mess around with. I know that's what a lot of our listeners are doing with it right now. It's a great opportunity to support the show. And get great cloud hosting for yourself from someone who's been around for a long time. That's the other thing that's really great is they're like a deep community member. Just about every event I've ever gone to, they've been a part oh, yeah, of. They've had right? a booth there. They've been giving away swag. Even our humble Linux Fest Northwest. Absolutely. So it's really awesome now that they're a sponsor. Linode.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linode for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Linode.com slash unplugged. Chris, I signed up for Linode just last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And what are you using it for? I am upskilling, uh, getting up to speed on some technologies in the sysadmin space that I haven't really played with uh, since I've been out of that world. 
That's such a great use. Right? Oh, it's awesome. I think I hear that from a lot of our listeners that they use it for training. It's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Linode.com slash unplugged. Now, Stuart and Popey are specifically joining us today because they had a proposal. Maybe I'll let Popey tell the story that uh, didn't quite get the traction they were hoping for originally, but has now kind of been opened up to the community to potentially run with. Last year, the Genome Project announced that they were in collaboration with uh, Endless. They were doing a community engagement challenge, um, and they pre-announced it last year um, to launch this year. And the goal of it was really to um, come up with ways that could encourage more people to get involved in open source software. And part of the motivation for that was Endless stumped up some cash as prizes for people who were successful in getting their projects through this uh, community engagement challenge process. And um, ever interested in the idea of uh, making money, I uh, I looked at this and thought, huh, that might be interesting, I'm sure... Uh, me and some pals can come up with some ideas that could get through this and maybe we'll make a little bit of beer money on the side. So I mentioned it to my good friend Stuart and uh, we brainstormed for a bit about things that might be interesting and uh, we came up with this idea for something called Cabin, which I'll let Stuart describe. Uh, but we we went through a process of creating a proposal and writing uh plan documents and uh, submitting them almost at the last minute uh, when the deadline for the first phase of this project uh, came about. Uh, But as you said, yes, we weren't successful in being selected for the first phase. Um, And those projects go through a filtering process for the further phases, which will follow through the rest of this year and into next year. Um, But we were keen for this to not be lost because we put some effort into creating this proposal. And so we thought we'd publish it. And so Stuart published it because he did the lion's share of the work on cabin and came up with the original idea. So he published it on his blog. I wonder if, is it correct in my assumption that this feels like it's informed by maybe a longer held philosophy that you've been developing for a while that we need more apps, less distros. I know I've heard both you and Popey talk about that. Is it's there needs to be a, maybe a better way to get apps onto Linux? Is that what informed this, or what was the nature? Um, as you say, I've I've been developing a philosophy that we need more apps and fewer distros for years, um, and a whole bunch of other things about how application development should work and the kinds of developers and the kinds of applications I'd like to see on our desktops, and. Cabin is an attempt to answer some, but not all, of those questions. So, to give you an example, think about your phone. I would say about half of the applications I use on my phone are single-shot apps. They're not um, big, complicated apps which do a whole bunch of things. They are small single function things to grab an image and crop it or to uh, grab an image and put a um, a speech bubble with some text on top of it. Little helpful tools. Yes, exactly. Now, ignoring the command line on the Linux desktop to a first approximation, we have none of them. 
We do not have tools like that. If you want to take an image and put a speech bubble with some words on top of it, you have to open up GNU Imp, the GIMP, right? Which is a terrible thing. Or maybe you want to open up Criter or something like that instead, whatever. But the point is, these are full fat, fully complicated applications. And building such things is hard. Using such things is hard. And frankly, it's one of the reasons why we've got 10,000 applications and Android's got 10 million. And so from my perspective, the issue is not that people don't have ideas for these applications. It's that it's really difficult to build them because our application development story is fragmented. It's complicated. Uh, it's full of holy wars going back 20 years <laughs> that no one even remembers the original reasons for. Really? Yeah. What I wanted was a way for someone who's not a particularly experienced programmer, but this is someone who's on, who's using a Linux desktop, right? So they're already using Linux desktop. They have an idea for a small application that they would like. Um, those of you out there who are Linux desktop users and are programmers, or especially if you're web um, developers and are and programmers, you will probably have the experience of people you know asking you to build tiny little applications to do things. So I've built applications for people to calculate the angle that they should tilt the handlebars at on their on their new road bike in order to um, best fit their frame. And I've built uh, tiny little applications to count down to the next Star Wars film <laughs> that they could put on their home screen. Excellent. Stuff like this that I think real people have this idea for applications all the time, and they should be able to follow the whole app process through from I have had an idea to other people are now happily using that application. Well, a couple of observations. It seems that, I mean, the reason we call them even apps now is this idea that they're smaller applications. It's not a full application. It's an app. And they do smaller functions, but that's what you expect on a mobile device. And I think those app stores have totally proven out that that model of application development not only works, but can actually be quite profitable for some developers. But when I also kind of look at the broader picture of what you're sort of proposing here, I kind of look over at the elementary OS guys and I go, you know who does have apps kind of like that? is elementary OS because they have created a consistent and clear story for the developers on how to create applications for their platform, what they should look like, and then how to distribute them to end users, potentially with the possibility of making a profit. And they've gotten some traction. It's not blowing the doors off and changing open source as we know it, but it could be, in a way, a, a sort of a test lab proving out what you're proposing here. Yes, absolutely. Um, the elementary people have um, exactly the right idea, in my opinion, and they're doing the right thing because... Most importantly, what they're attempting to do is create a culture which values this kind of thing. And this is why, in my opinion, they've taken a fairly long step away from calling themselves a Linux distribution, exactly because they're not. They don't want you to be running applications that run on Linux generally on elementary. They don't want you to be running elementary apps on other distributions. And um, when you show up and say, hey, your desktop environment how do I run it on 
something else. They'll say, well, suppose like this, but we don't really want you to do that because they want to build a culture where everything fits together. And that's really important. And valuing this kind of application, I think, is a big thing. What Cabin attempts to do is slightly different. It is like the elementary model in that elementary have nominated the way you should build applications handed down on stone tablets. You should use uh, their libraries, their programming language. This is how you should publish them, so on and so forth. And that's the right thing to do, frankly. But I think Valor's too hard for the kind of applications, the kind of programmers that Cabin is targeting. It's at least a big ask. Yeah. The elementary people have the disadvantage by comparison with Cabin that they would like you, if you want to sit down and build a full fat, fully complicated application on elementary, they would absolutely welcome that. And therefore, their development environment and their development libraries and their development process has to be able to encompass that kind of application. Cabin utterly does not. Cabin buys itself a bunch of ease of use by intentionally sacrificing breadth of scope. You cannot and would not ever be able to build anything more than these noddy little applications in Cabin. And that's fine. Is there a risk of creating, to put it harshly, trash apps that sort of clutter things up? Is there a risk of that, do you think? Or does that sort of sort itself out? That depends on your definition of trash. Um, And frankly... Yeah, it would probably be a problem if we had a million applications and a bunch of them rubbish, but having a million applications would be a good problem to have on our (laughs) desktop, right? At that point, yeah, there's a filtering issue there, which belongs to the app stores, the Snap Store or whatever, um, about how you filter good applications from bad. And it's a problem that uh, the iOS is dealing with and the Android is dealing with and the Windows is dealing with and it's the web's dealing with it. The reason we haven't had to deal with that problem is because we have no apps to filter. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So what Cabin attempts to do is provide a programming environment that someone relatively new to programming can understand but without hiding the idea that applications are built with code. So it's not a snap some jigsaw pieces together thing. I'm being terribly mean to things like Scratch here, which you can actually build really cool stuff with. But I didn't want to hide the idea that this is still fundamentally programming, Mm. right? If you're not interested in programming, you shouldn't be trying to build applications. (laughs) You can't hide that away forever. And anytime you do try and hide it away, What happens is people discover it unpleasantly halfway through and then suddenly don't understand things. So you don't want to pull the rug out from under people when they're attempting to develop new applications. But cabin apps are built so that they're essentially compiled into Python and GTK. And it doesn't hide that. So the idea is, if you ever get to the point where you're hitting the limit of what could be built in a cabin application, you've then learned enough about programming that you can take a peek under the covers and go, ah, what this is, is a simplified interface to a more powerful thing. So now I'm ready to learn the more powerful thing. Yeah, and that's often what you know, gives people a chance to start and begin to build something. So Stuart, you and Popey have put this out to the world. What would success in a scenario like this kind of look like? Because realistically, it must be some form of adoption or, or inspiration. I would like someone to pick it up and, and prototype what, we envisaged it to look like with some guidance you know we'd be happy to help but you know we're both busy and it's not something we could commit full time to but we want we didn't want the 
the proposal to die in um, an, a file we uploaded to a contest that we didn't <laughs> succeed at. We didn't want it to just die there. So we, we want, we thought it had worth. And so success would be if someone, you know, started hacking on something, if they had a bit of time and they had some time to hack on it and, you know, get it bootstrapped, you know, with guidance, we'd love to like help as a normal open source project like anything else. And, you know, future success would be people created little apps with it. That would be a measure of success for sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. There are a half dozen ideas that cabin embodies, in my opinion. One of them is um, the thing about uh, helping people with ideas, transition them into applications without throwing the world of programming at them. A second one is that it's a stepping stone to more complicated things when you're ready for them. A third one is the idea... um, if you look at the cabin specification, uh, you'll see that you've got your application and your code on show at all times. Changing one changes the other in lockstep, in concert, uh, which is a, an idea from Brett Vector. And I think that's a really important way to develop things. And people don't currently have it. Fourth idea, building an application is considerably more than just writing the source code. Making sure that your application has a description, an icon, a tagline, a title, that it's packaged up and uploaded to a software store, that it's available in that software store and you can push new versions to it, that the community can gather around the application and feed feedback back to you. All of that stuff is just as important as the source code, and it's shamefully slighted by most of our development environments at the moment. Unless you're using some kind of immensely complicated uh, full-bore IDE like Android Studio is or Xcode is, QCreator does some of this, but not a lot of it. And a lot of that is because those environments have to be able to cope with A, building the most complicated applications on Earth, um, including themselves, and B, to be swappable out in the kinds of applications they can build. Cabin's allowed to just say, this is the kind of application it builds. This is where it publishes it. We make that easy. And you can't switch it out for publishing different kinds of applications. And from my point of view, if someone were to be inspired by those ideas but build something quite different to cabin but it still met all those requirements i consider that very successful obviously the way i think you should meet those requirements is cabin why we respect it (laughs) right of course but that would be that would be a benchmark of success right the idea getting propagated yes the the idea that people should be able to build an application get it into the hands of other users who can then enjoy it build a community around it feed back to you about it learn uh, maybe how to start programming applications themselves. That, to me, is a thing that we should be aiming for on our desktop. We're not currently doing it. So if someone is inspired to do that, I'm happy. I also think another key aspect of this is the concept of redefining what is an application worth time uh, to develop and deploy on Linux. And I look at my usage on and off over the good old years and I used to have plasmoids loaded up on my plasma desktop, which would show me different information and pull in different feeds, which are essentially tiny little QML applications. And uh, same with GK Realm. And of course, there was other other systems before then where I've had small little useful contained applications. And it, 
There's just never been something that's broader and higher level for it. And I, I really think it does have some interesting ideas that would I'd love to maybe even just see people discuss at the upcoming Linux Application Summit. That could be a good place mm. for something like this to get talked about, you know. So is there anything really further after this, guys? Or is this kind of it's out there for the world now and people are welcome to come see it? The goal was to get the ideas out there. Because as as uh, as Fabi says, we spent a while putting this together and it seemed a shame to just have it quietly die on a hard drive somewhere. Could make for a good talk. Uh, yeah, if someone wanted to talk about it. But um, yeah, it, it, it's not something I could afford to devote a bunch of uh, my free time to because I've already got a zillion free time projects. <laughs> um, uh, if, if someone wants to come in with a checkbook and pay me to build it, I'm, I'll listen because then it's paid time, which <laughs> sure, I've got, right. which I've got more of. But <laughs> but yeah, I think um, from my point of view, it's out there, and if someone were to want to pick it up, I'm sure we'd be happy to talk to them about it. And I'm, I suspect Alan would agree. One hundred percent, yes. Yeah, and I, I just like us thinking about this stuff. If nothing else, yeah. it's a good thing for us to, it's a good headspace for us to be in. Thanks for coming on on your Sunday, gentlemen, and chatting with us about it. It's, it's an interesting idea. And of course, we'll have links to it all in the in the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 371. Did I get that? 71. Nice. I want to say thank you to Cloud Guru for sponsoring this episode of Unplugged. You know, we talk about one of the best ways to learn is by actually doing a Cloud Guru now includes Cloud Playground for Azure, AWS, or Google Cloud Platform Sandboxes. You get on there, you log in, you have a system, and it's on their dime, not yours. I like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a great way to learn by actually doing it. And of course, then there's a bunch of other resources you can fall back on as well. It's just one click to a fast, fresh, disposable cloud environment at your fingertips. There's really no better way to learn, is there? And then you have the confidence to actually go test, or even better, do the job in the real world. Just go to a cloudguru.com. And thanks to Cloud Guru for sponsoring the Unplugged program. How about some feedback, Mr. Payne? Ooh. So last week we had our bugathon after the show and pretty happy with the way it went. Some lessons learned, but overall, we got great tips on how to make a bug report that was useful for developers. That's awesome. I earned my first Fedora badge. Sure did. That's pretty cool. And then also, there was just a lot of good information about just general troubleshooting throughout. And there was a couple of times we thought we had found ourselves quite the bug, but then, you know, reproducing the process and working through it, we kind of worked it out. Sometimes it's just UI inconsistencies. It was really a lot of fun. It was. And learned some stuff. So I decided to make it available to our Unplugged Core contributors. You just have to go sign in. Um, so if you go to unpluggedcore.com, there's a little sign-in button there. They make it really small because it's the sign-up page. But if you you click the little sign-in button, then you go to your downloads area. The whole thing's available for download. And I actually think it's worthwhile, even if you're not a Fedora user or interested in ButterFS, to hear the guys talk about you know what they need in a bug report and how the processes you got to go through and some of the some of the little nuances that Carl and and Neil went into particularly when we actually came to the point of okay I'm about to create this bug report here's my questions oh well for that you need to know I've really little edge cases sh- shined a lot of light on the yeah the intricacies of keeping track of all this stuff and how do you actually make it actionable and test methodology so it's available for the core contributors right now and I think maybe you know maybe in the in the future, we'll probably release it in the main feed, like if we like if we get sick or something, need a week off. But in the meantime, it's available for the core contributors right now at unpluggedcore.com. And the other thing that's really cool about the Bugathon is we're going to keep the channel going in Matrix. So developers are welcome to join us in there to seek people to help them test their projects if that 
is a benefit to your project. If you are understaffed when it comes to testing, we'll have people that are able and willing in our Bugathon matrix room. Uh, but additionally, what was kind of neat is even people who couldn't attend live ended up doing it on their own. So I've been hearing from people throughout the week oh, great. about them testing it. And uh, that I really like. I didn't really think about that, but that's a neat knock-on effect is even the download audience who didn't attend live, could never make it live, can still help us with this. Right. And so that's something I think I want to definitely take advantage of in the future for the next project we do this for. I think we're going to do it again. Can I also just say, uh, seems like... Fedora 33 shaping up to be quite a release. I mean, hardly any bugs at all. So far. I mean, we really, you know, we really put it through its paces. I uh, did a live conversion to ButterFS. Oh, that was fun. Which was successful, but did teach us a couple of things that we'll, we'll try to cover in our, uh, in our review in the future. A couple of going indie updates, I figure. Keep everybody in the loop on what's going on with JB now. You'll see a new logo rolling out to the shows and to the website. A little updated logo. I, I don't know if this is our permanent logo, or if this is like get us to Linux Fest, mm. I, I haven't really decided yet. I'm I'm sitting with it, and I kind of just like the simplicity of it. So if you haven't seen it yet, it'll be showing up like in the MP3 art and on the feeds and on the website, so you can check that out. Lots of work going on behind the scenes to build up the pipeline for the membership feeds. Thank you specifically to you and Drew for working super hard on that. I really appreciate it. So that's been getting rolled out. We're still making tweaks to some of that and working out a pipeline. You know, a lot of times we start manual processes. A lot of times they fall on Wes's shoulders. <laughs> so I really appreciate you doing the picking up the slack there. And then we develop them into an automated process. Exactly. Uh, you know, so first the human, the human process. And then it's like you learn it, right? You understand what has to be done. And then you just replace it with bits of automation. Yeah, right. Otherwise, we wouldn't. I mean, we got to answer a lot of questions of how are we actually doing this? Yeah. I really love that you said Wes and me. When really, my whole thing with it is, hey, Wes, are you handling the ad-free feed this week? <laughs> That's like the extent of it. Yeah, you can find it on our on our uh, next cloud. Yeah, go get the file. Yeah. You do it. Go here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the other thing I want to be clear about that is I'm, it's like a, it's an ad, it's limited ads. There is a couple of short ads in there that are contractually obligated, but we're going to start cutting out the membership plug itself from that version of the show and future ad contracts won't be included in that show. Uh, right now, it's 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 probably technically slightly a shorter show too. I'd imagine, I guess, but it's uh, it's coming along, and it's really been a team effort, and it's been also kind of like, I think we're all kind of motivated because there's been a great community response. It's been really awesome to see. Um, and then we're also still taking your ideas for Linux Prepper, which is in the matrix. Be prepared in layers, and what are those layers? What about with what if your cloud service goes out? What if your main rig goes out? Just can't boot that day. What if you got a bug out? How do you prep? as a Linux user. Join us in the new Matrix room and check for the Linux prepper room in particular, and uh, we'll get a conversation that'll eventually turn into uh, show content. See, if we were thinking ahead, we would have had a Linux-powered smoke filtration system set up already. No kidding. No kidding. All right. So uh, five creative, you think You think that's how you say it? Five? Five yeah. creative? Uh, writes in about dev, ED, dev IDEs. He says, hey guys, longtime listener, first time collaborator. Dirty collaborator. I thought it might be a cool thing to do something similar to the Podcatcher Playoff, but for IDEs and editors. Oh, nobody has an opinion on editors, right? Yeah. Of course not. Uh, he says, I've been a longtime user of Komodo IDE, namely for its integrated SSH support. I've gone all into Linux, and I no longer require that feature with built-in SSH support in the OS. I just received my Pinebook Pro and thought it would be great to ask around for a lightweight editor. I know of many, but which ones do people love? Thanks for the hard work you put into the podcast. And uh, he also says that Ubuntu podcast is great. 
It is. Doesn't actually say that, but we do think that. And that Bad Voltage podcast, too. Right. It says that in there, too. You just put that in there. <laughs> I shouldn't give them edit access. <laughs> I know. Weird, right? <laughs> um, so does anybody have a text editor that's lightweight? You know, we often on this show will joke about Nano being the one and true text editor, <laughs> but there's others out there. Does anybody have one they want to give a little love to? I use four of them on a daily basis. Wait, wait. Four? All right. Walk me through this. I'm, I'm going to brace myself here. Okay. So I use Vim primarily. As one does. As one does, because the Church of Vim is awesome. But sometimes I need a graphical text editor because, you know, sometimes I like to use a scroll wheel with my mouse, you know, use like the standard keyboard shortcuts and all that. Like a gentleman. So I use Mousepad because that's installed on all my systems. On my workstation, I have VS Code and, a, and another one I've been playing around with called Kakoon, which is like Vim, but different. Kakoon, okay. And don't think I didn't just notice that you just cash dropped that you're an XFCE user. I totally caught that. Uh, no, actually, I'm not using a XFCE. Really? Oh. But you're using Mousepad? What kind of animal are you? <laughs> a savage animal. That's the kind. <laughs> Mix and match. And Mousepad is actually a pretty nice lightweight GUI editor. Yeah, it's pretty nice lightweight. It does not actually pull in the XFCE dependencies, so it's actually pretty well standalone. All right. So I don't see why you wouldn't use Mousepad outside of XFCE. That's fair. Yeah, definitely one of the uh, Chromium-based ones isn't going to be a list, isn't going to be a candidate for this one, is it? Anybody else have a, a graphical one is tricky. Well, you know, some folks really like sublime text. You know, there's a stalwart contingent there. Yeah, me for a stalwart. (laughs) Another vote for sublime. Okay. Sublime's wonderful, although I've got got terribly... um, uh, unassuming requirements for the text editor I spend half my life in. It basically has to start up quickly. It has to have multiple cursors, syntax highlighting, and it must never, ever, ever, ever lose a file. Even files I've never saved, never given a name to, if I start typing into a file and then I yank the power socket out of the back of my machine and then plug it back in again, it will still be there in Sublime when I start up. And that's why I can't switch away to it switch away to anything else because nothing else will guarantee that so i'm now used to doing that half the files i've got open in sublime i've got i think six sublime windows open at the moment each of which have got about 10 or 15 tabs in them and half of those have never been saved and they're still there across reboots they're actually across upgrading the operating system <laughs> it's magic um, magic yeah. sublime voodoo i love it's it. the best just use Sublime for everything. It's brilliant. I have to say, I wrote years of consulting notes in Sublime, and it never, ever failed me. And it always relaunched with my notes right where I left them, even massive multi-month documents. I do not use it anymore because um, I've just switched over to VS Code. I'm one of those people, but I, I love it. And it is definitely of the graphical, nice, high-end text editors. Yeah. It's definitely one of the quickest. It's not Chromium-based and... It's uh, it's pretty. Sp- Been around for family. quite some time too. You know, it's not it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Battle tested. Casual chemist, which is one of my favorite names, uh, writes in. This is funny because you can tell where people are at in the back catalog because when they get to the next cloud episode we did, they go, holy crap, I got to write these guys. What are they doing? <laughs> Don't worry, we're working on it. But he says, hello, listening for a few years, although I'm a few months behind. Yep, see, told you. He said, I've just heard of 362 on Linux Unplugged, the hidden cost of NextCloud. Yep, that's totally that's totally fair, Casual Chemist. A lot of people are still getting there. I'm also up to episode 21 of Self-Hosted. Uh, he loves that show, apparently. Awesome. Good job. New episode just came out where I compare sync thing to NextCloud. Which was something we were going to do in the show, but we actually ended up cutting it for time, and then I had more experience with it, and so uh, I'm trying to convince my co-host Alex to give Sync Thing a go. 
You're working there. You know. I, I'm working it. Yeah, I'm working it. So Casual Chemist goes on. He says, I was surprised that y'all pay $350 a month. That's $350 a month for NextCloud storage. I was surprised, but then when you broke it down, I was less shocked. However, have you considered using Backblaze or Wasabi instead of DigitalOcean's object storage? They're both S3 compatible. That's true. And then he gives the price currently of Backblaze. And he says, by the way, I want to give a shout out to my favorite backup solution, the love of my life. <laughs> Boy, that's somebody who loves a backup solution. Well, when it has all your data in its hands. Yeah, Borg Backup, which we've talked a little bit on the show before. And he just recently stumbled across a project called Borgomatic which uses some YAML config to automate Borg backups. There you go. What's one more YAML file? That's a winner. Um, yeah, so we've kind of taken a different approach. This has been a common suggestion. It's just essentially swapping out the backend cloud storage. We're kind of thinking about doing more of a primary storage on-site here at the studio kind of thing, because we do have a NAS here, and then keeping the raw editing files up on the cloud, so that way they're fast and easy to move around and quick for remote host upload and quick for remote editors to download, but keeping that tighter than we have in the past, you know, maybe keeping it close to like 50 gigs or something, right? Right. Just managing the hot stuff that, you know, needs to be up there and then anything else, we can move it to long-term storage. Yeah. And we'll probably in this process, we're probably going to migrate the server over to Linode. We're probably going to move the domain over and then we're going to have to migrate a bunch of the data down to the studio. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then we might take advantage, maybe, maybe not, of federating the two next cloud instances. Although I'm kind of tempted to keep them separate. You know, one's like an archive and one is current working projects. And yeah, the we're one, using them quite differently. Yeah, exactly. One is so we can retrieve something as an asset that we might need a year down the road. And one of them is for collaborating with co-hosts and remote hosts and editors. They're kind of two different systems anyways. Right. And it's just going to be pulling in the uh, one direction. So we're going to kind of, we're thinking, cut it down that line and that's where the bulk of the storage is going to be now is at the studio, which means maybe, you know, maybe I end up needing to buy disks sooner for the NAS down here than I planned. But that still will be a little bit out. We'll so, be really, uh, you know, getting no use out of the old large server. I know. And it, it has survived yet another summer where there's been no air conditioning in that garage. And I'm not joking. This year, the, the vent for the water heater broke. And so the water heater was just <laughs> venting into the garage. Right at the server. Kind of actually on the same wall as the server, at least. But, you know, it keeps static electricity down. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that server not only is put up with like 90 degree. I mean, it's it's hot in there. And then I I pull a car in there that's been driving. Right. So it's got a hot engine and hot metal surface. And then I park it in there. And that's got to raise the ambient temperature. And then the hot water heater which we don't use a lot of hot water at the studio, but it still keeps it heated up, right? So that's venting. I mean, it, it's unbelievable that what that server has survived. You know, we do sell Colo here, uh, but you probably don't want it. Yeah, Jupiter Broadcasting's discount hosting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our prices are so low. Well, and not to mention the fact that we abuse the hell out of it for fun and profit. Yes, that's true, too. <laughs> Live on the air. Poor, poor server. It really has put up with a lot. All right, let's talk about Cozy. Uh, Cozy is a modern audiobook player for your GNU slash Linux desktop, and it's designed to make it super comfy, comfskies, and cozy to browse your library. It, it's sort of like Plex for audiobooks, but it's a local application. Looks pretty Linux. sharp too. It does. It's. I mean, if you if you're of the GTK persuasion, which I often am. Um, even even on my Plasma desktop, I still I still like GTK app design. You know, it's assuming simple, clean. I'm that guy. But it has sleep timers, which is my favorite for audiobooks. 
And yes, it remembers your playback position. It has offline mode, of course, so you can keep uh, your uh, your books locally. And then there's you know there's other things out there too to help with that. Uh, I think it's I think it's called Open Audible. Are you familiar with? Have we talked about that before? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I might have to do a little live googling on the show. But if you're an Audible customer, check out Open Audible. And then you could use something like Cozy to uh, import all of those. So it's kind of a nice combination. It seems like it's not biting too much off either. You know, it's not this like crazy, complicated ebook managing monster. It's really just like a clean way to read your ebooks. And what they have done, you know, it's been well integrated. It's got, you know, media player controls on your desktop. If your desktop has that, it seems very usable. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And then we already got a whole bunch of really good, nice picks. Can I, uh, can I give a book suggestion for somebody to listen to on Cozy? Totally. Uh, I'd recommend going to check out The Strain. It's kind of a vampire book written by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan, and it is narrated by none other than Ron Perlman. You know who I've been trying to find books narrated by? You're gonna, I'm such a dork. Captain Janeway. Kate Mongrew. She's got such a cool yeah, voice. You know, does. you get a good book by her. I found a Voyager book, so that kind of worked, but yeah. Yeah, good pick. All right, well, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, and we will be back to our regular live time next week which is noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Eastern people time. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. And of course, everything we talked about is at linuxunplugged.com slash 371. Check out Popey on Ubuntu Podcasts. Check out Stuart on Bad Voltage. Thanks to both of you for making it on the show today. You're welcome. You're welcome. And um, let's see, what about you, Wes? Where can they find you? You can find me at Wes Payne. I knew it. I thought you might be on Twitter. Yeah. What about you, Drew? Did you do it? Did you do the Twitter? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter, at Drew of Doom. I did it. I'm at Chris Lass. The show did it, too. At Linux Unplugged, I think. I think. At Jupiter Signal for the network. Pretty sure on that one. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode. Sorry we weren't live to see you, but we will, we will see you next week. Maybe we'll see you on Tuesday! my ship that's my janeway oh hadia and i watched the hunt for red october this weekend oh, yeah. it's the first time she had seen it been kind of introducing her to a couple of the classics uh you know didn't actually hold up quite as much for me as uh, I, was. I was a little like i was like there's oh. always that risk i was like oh good movie but i wasn't like like beforehand i was like all right well let's get everything ready we get our popcorn we'll get our wine dim the lights yep yeah we're like let's settle in and prepare this is gonna be a it's gonna be a real you know like a, a guy movie from the 90s let's do this and we put it on i'm like oh, you know it's not bad but you're watching you're like this just doesn't really hold up to scrutiny anyways i don't it's still fun well and wasn't that alec baldwin as um as uh jack ryan in that one yeah as a yeah, as a C, jack yes. ryan the cia analyst yep and uh there's some stuff he does he just kind of like oh really yeah but uh, still fun. It's a good romp. And then tonight we kick off Star Trek, the original series. Oh, ho.